Welcome to RevOps Corner, where we talk about how B2B SaaS companies scale through revenue operations by interviewing amazing guests and sharing what we see in the trenches every day here at Union Square Consulting. All right. Today, I'm here with Doug Landis, growth partner in Emergence Capital, to talk about how early stage B2B SaaS companies go to market, build out their revenue operations, and scale and raise successive rounds of funding. Emergence Capital is a VC primarily investing in startups in Series A and B rounds. They've backed companies worth over $100 billion collectively, including many of the most popular tools in the revenue tech stack, Salesforce, Salesloft, Steelbrick, Chorus, Zoom, and Box, just to name a handful. As growth partner, Doug is responsible for capturing, creating, and sharing go-to-market strategies and ideas with MCAP portfolio companies and the greater SaaS community. Doug, thank you so much for joining me today. You are welcome. I am excited. I love this. I love, that, was a, that was a great intro, by the way. That was, uh, that was actually felt very polished, nice and natural. I know there's a lot of words uh, in there, but uh, yeah, I think I think you captured captured the the ethos of, of me and emerging. Thank you. So it was very that. scripted. And with the previous tech issues, I had a couple of chances to practice <laughs> this. So anyway, I am excited to dive in. Thank well, you, you nailed it. Appreciate that. Let's do um, it. I think where I wanted to start is just to hear more about your day to day. So your growth partner, tell me a little bit more about like the work you're doing every day <laughs> with your portfolio companies, what that entails. <laughs> so um, we we just recently defined kind of our our platform team strategy at Emergence um, that to 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 in essence encapsulate the three buckets that I likely spend most of my time. I say likely because at the end of the day, my day is, is um, it's not always the same as you can imagine. It's almost like working at a startup. I mean, in essence, you know, because we do such early stage investing, some cases we invest in a company where there's nine employees and, you know, they got to a million in revenue based on founder selling, which they should arguably what we expect. And now all of a sudden they get all this funding. Now they need to go hire a whole go to market team. And and so you can imagine the the challenges that these early companies face kind of run the gamut, largely predicated on their past experience, largely predicated on the team that they had in place that got them to where they were by the time we stepped in and got got involved. So so my day to day, um, the easiest way to think about my day to day is I think about it in like three different buckets, right? We we have like, you know, we've got um, we have content, we've got community, and then we've got coaching. Most of my days, I'd say, are spent on one-on-one coaching with our go-to-market leaders across the portfolio. If you look at my calendar, it's largely 30-minute conversations with all of them. Um, outside of that, when I'm not doing that, sometimes I'm building content, i.e. doing podcasts, writing posts for LinkedIn, or working on content that's going to go inside our founders portal, which we're just about to launch here in the next quarter which I wrote last year because at the end of the day, there's one of me and we've got 60 active portfolio companies. I created a go-to-market handbook to give myself some leverage because what, what I've found in the world of venture, and, and, and you, you, know, you know this, when you're focused on one area or function, functional area like RevOps, or if you're just used to working in early stage software companies, what you realize is we're all in the pattern recognition business, right? And, and in my role, the patterns are quite similar. When you're Series A, I know what you're going to face over the next five to seven years. I just, I can map it out for you. And that's what we do. We just start to kind of knock down each one of these 
speed bumps, if you will. And and the reality is is when you hit you know when you hit a a uh, a challenging situation, you know the the truth is that I've likely seen it ten, fifteen, twenty times before. And so you know my job is to kind of help our leaders, whether it's the CEO or go to market leaders, kind of navigate those murky waters. Um, and then the last thing is is community and really helping to to to, to share more broadly across our our portfolio community, but also even just the greater kind of go-to-market community about the things that I'm learning and seeing and hearing and 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 kind of what's top of mind. So yeah, that's, that's kind really of my helpful. world. Content. That's coaching, really community. helpful context. I think I'd love to dive into the coaching. And if you could share, let's start yeah. with what you just mentioned. What are some of the most common challenges and pitfalls you see Series A companies making or facing? Uh, well, first, let's just define Series A. Because Series A today is very different than it was two or three years ago. Series A two or three years ago was, you know, you're at a million or two million in revenue. Um, you've got largely what you're show, showcasing us is you've got product market fit, and you really want to accelerate that, move into what my good buddy Mark Gerberge calls is go to market fit, right? And so in that case, the first things, that, you know, the two things that I see most early stage, I'm going to call it. I'm just going to use early stage as a bucket because what's happening nowadays is Series A is now kind of slid down into seed. And you've got a lot of companies that are in the three, 400K ARR range. And now they're going out raising a Series A, even though they just raised the seed round six months ago. It's very different today than it was a few years ago. It's crazy. And, and so when I say early stage, I'm kind of putting seed, seed plus, you know, early A, A, maybe even an A plus or A extension round all in the same bucket, right? So let's just define that. Now, what do I typically see at those stages? Well, the first thing that everyone cares about, the first thing that we typically dig into is hiring. Do we have the right butts and seats? And if not, what are the key strategic hires that you need to make in order for you to be able to build the foundation so you can scale? Oftentimes when it comes to hiring, they typically have the wrong person, maybe they hired a, you know, an AE who is a buddy of theirs for two or three years and they turn them into a head of sales and they've never done the job before. And so they don't know their head from their big toe. Um, or they don't have, maybe they have a couple of salespeople, they maybe have a CSM and they have no marketing. So it's really a matter of understanding where are the gaps and where, what do we need to fill right away? So got to get the right people in place. And then the second thing is like, okay, now we need to start to unpack our whole go-to-market motion. Who are we targeting in terms of our ICP and how do we know that? What's the data that backs up, backs up who, we're, who we're targeting? Who are our buyer personas? Here's an interesting thing that I, I noticed that is everyone neglects until you get to later stage. But buyer persona mapping is such an important exercise. And as early stage founders and early stage revenue leaders, you have to do this and make sure you're constantly evolving who your buyer personas are and what you know about them and what you and and how to best engage with them because oftentimes and here's the interesting thing and you'll appreciate this as a revops leader but statistically speaking most salespeople only call a particular contact two or three times and i say call loosely but call an email two or three times and most salespeople only engage with one or two people in an account when in actuality we know it takes eight to 10 touches in order for somebody to respond. And you need to be engaged with at least six to eight, in some cases, 10, 12, 15 people in an organization in order to truly understand the landscape of who's involved in making a decision. And so if you, 
if early on you're not clear about who your buyers are and what you what's what's important to know about them and how to engage them then you're you're doing yourself a disservice so we kind of start there like who are we targeting and why who are our buyer personas and then we start thinking about kind of what i'm going to call the revops gunk right which is like what does the operating model look like which by the way most sales leaders don't know how to build an operating model i hate to say that hence the reason why i said to you earlier when we were when we first had our conversation we had a conversation a while back ago i'm like hire revops right out of the gate because it's hard to find a sales leader at the early stage that has the, the RevOps DNA necessary to build the right process and the right foundation to be able to scale. It really is. It's difficult. And, and so I'm, I'm a big fan of like, bite the bullet earlier, hire somebody to help you so that you can go focus on engaging with customers, hiring the right folks, getting the right pricing and packaging in place, getting the right messaging and the right narrative in place, and kind of getting all of the big, what I call kind of buckets uh, out what of the What do you way. see happen? That was a long no, answer. No, I, I think this is great. <laughs> um, what do you see happen when startups hire a sales leader and skip over RevOps? Well, you know, what, what, what typically happens is, is threefold. Number one, the sales leader gets burnt out. Because they basically spend nights and weekends trying to run reports, trying to look at Salesforce data to get all the information that, guess what, your CEO and the board is asking you for. But and also me as your, you know, as your as your partner, I'm also asking, going to ask the same questions. Be like, okay, well, talk to me about like how long are deals getting stuck, and you know, what's what stages were our deals getting stuck. What's our conversion rate from a time we identify someone as a lead, which I've got a whole issue with leads. We can talk about that in a minute um, to, to opportunity, opportunity to close. Um, how are you thinking about territories? Um, how are you, how are you implementing new tools? We had a company early on. I'll never forget this. We hired a head of sales who had never really been a head of sales before. He's more like an RVP and he was hired as a player coach. Note to self, Never hire a player coach. It's the worst situation to put a sales leader in. It's so dumb. But it's like, oh, we can have them close deals and hire a team at the same time. Great. Give them a quota and have them coach people at the same time. Really difficult for them to choose. Anyway, so had his first time head of sales. We had you know two salespeople, and he was a player coach. And, and it was quickly evident that we needed to start bringing in some tooling, right? So we needed sales loft. We needed chorus just so that we could start to build some best practices and really truly understand what's working, what's not working, and also do a better job of, of responding to, uh, to all the inbound leads that we were getting at the time, right? So guess what? He's like, so here's somebody who didn't really know Salesforce all that well. Now all of a sudden has to implement both sales loft and chorus into their tech stack and go make calls and close deals and hire people and coach these reps and figuring out pricing and packaging. And so what invariably ends up happening, if you're not thinking about RevOps early enough, is the sales leader just burns out. They burn out and guess what? Things just fall through the cracks. And CEO gets frustrated because they're not getting the information that they need that the board is likely asking for. And sales leaders kind of feels like they suck at their job. So it's a, it, it can be a messy yeah. situation. I think that's a lot of what we see as well. And in addition to that, what we see with our, our own customers, as well as just in the RevOps community, is that this rolls downhill. And without having a really good strategy in place, 
you end up with a RevOps professional, a Salesforce admin, an office manager, or the sales leader themselves that just have this endless list of updates they wanna make in tools. And then whenever they do actually go to, to run analysis, they don't have the data structure in place to support that analysis. They literally can't get the report they want because the data is not there, because the process is not there, because the strategy is not there. So then they're saying, oh, we need to figure out our, right. our lead conversions. We'll start collecting the data today. Then they need to go and train the team. Today, yeah, and they're already a year late. <laughs> they're a year late. Then it takes three months to get the team actually trained and, and able to actually do that. And then it's another three months before that data starts to tell you anything. So now you're a year and a half late before you can actually run that insight that you as the, as the investor asked for six months ago. And you were hoping that they had historic data to back this up. So then it rolls into things like your ideal customer profile, your buyer personas, you know, which channels are working, all of these things. And you're basically just like operating the business off of gut instinct and just like hacking away and yep. hustling instead of having a real strategic roadmap and a methodical way of going to market. Yep. Well, and then and then let's throw another piece in here too as well, right? So Series A, arguably, you could say it's somewhere between 600K and a million. Well, once you go out and you raise your Series A, now there's pressure. You've got to go from a million mm -hmm. to four, arguably. That's what we're thinking. Now, you're likely thinking as a founder or a revenue leader that you need, only need to go from one to three. That's fine. Whatever it may be. We're going to push you to four. So what do you have to do? You have to start capacity planning. Well, shoot. How many reps do I need? And then as a result, how many leads do I need? And from a lead conversion perspective, you know, what are we, what do I, what do I expect our reps to be doing in terms of number of opportunities they should be working, number of calls they need to be making in a given, you know, in a given day, week, month, et cetera. And so you start, the problem is you start like just doing all this back of the napkin math and you realize, well, okay, in order to get to 3 million with an ACV of 20 K, you know, okay, 20 K in a sales cycle of 45 to 60 days, even though that's not necessarily normal, but we're still new. So how many people do we need? And then, oh, by the way, when do I need to hire them? Oh, I should have hired them six months ago, right? Because we're now behind. And so I don't know if we're going to get to that $4 million number because we just don't have enough inbound coming in. Because by the way, inbound actually drives up way faster than anybody ever thinks. And so now we got to start thinking about going outbound. But then you have to think about your cost of sale because if you start going outbound too early on 10 to 12K deals, it's too expensive, right? So there's all these other variability, all these other variables that you have to take it, take into consideration outside of like the core big buckets. And, and it just, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. It is a lot. And RevOps. Can so help. I think. Hence the reason why you guys exist. <laughs> you know, if they don't have RevOps, I'm like, sweet, just work with an outside firm that's going to help you get your shit off the ground because Otherwise, you're, you're that's die. the idea. And increasingly, one of the challenges that I see as being one of the biggest here is getting the leaders to really map out a cohesive strategy that's communicated all the way down the funnel, including to RevOps. Uh, I'm curious how you help founders do that. You've touched on a couple things. You've touched on ICP, you touched on buyer personas. Um, you touched on a lot of conversion metrics and having data structures in place. What else are you doing when you work with companies, especially if it's somebody, actually, let me rephrase my question so we can cut this into a nice clip. What are some of the main things that you're doing with founders to help them define their strategy for go-to-market? Oh, Eddie, that is such a big question. 
because I'm going to say it depends. And the reason why I say it depends is if we've got a founder that has done this before, if they're a second time, third time founder, and they're bringing a, a seasoned leadership team to the table with them, um, we just invest in a company, hasn't even been announced, the company doesn't even have a product, but the CEO, we've known for a long time, we've worked with at several companies of ours. And so we're like, okay, they get it. They understand us. We understand them. They understand go to market. You know, the challenge is I, I don't have to spend a whole lot of time convincing them that they need to go out and hire RevOps right away. They get it because um, they've done it before, because they've seen it. They've gone through the pains mm -hmm. before, if you will. If it's a first time founder, oh man, it can be, it can, on the one hand, it can be as simple as like, look, Doug, I trust you. Tell me what I need to do. Map, map out my go to market with me and let's just sit in a room and whiteboard everything from, you know, how are we going to get from a million to four to 12, you know, to 24, 48, 96, et cetera. Cool. No problem. On the other hand, I've got founders who, you know, they think that they know everything and they're like, oh, I've came from, you know, the best companies in the world. And so I got this, um, they hire a sales leader and then it's not until they start realizing that they're not getting what they need out of the sales leader. And they realize that we're now falling behind and, you know, what's basically been carrying us through our like organic is, is an organic expansion. Right. And so in that case, it's like, you know, sometimes it's kind of like being a parent. Sometimes you have to kind of wait until your kids kick their kick their shin on the coffee table or put their hand on the stove when I told them it was too hot. Like, you know, I, I, so so that's why I say it depends. It totally depends on 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 you know. First of all, who we're working with and the team, and then the second thing is like it depends on the market. In some cases, like we have another company right now that, I mean, it's just they're absolutely killing it. And, and so what we're trying to do right now is just make sure that we've got the foundation in place so that, you know, we can, we can pour more fuel on the fire, right? It's not a, it's not, it's not a, oh shit, we've got to fix these problems. It's like, this is amazing. Let's get ahead of what we know is already coming and, and start kind of preemptively anticipating what we're likely going to face because we're going from, you know, a million to 10 in nine months. Right. And that, by the way, creates its own challenges, just like going from, you know, when you're trying to go from a million to four and you're only getting to two, two and a half, that's a whole bucket of, you know, of, uh, of, of problems. But, you know, going from a million to 10 is a whole nother slew of problems as well, even though you're, you know, we like to see all the revenue. Growth. Yeah. Just, just, just getting careful. things done so, and hiring people. There's not a, there's not, there's not, there's not, a, there's not an easy answer is, is the point. But, but at the end of the day, you know, I'll always fall back on kind of the the playbook, which is like, all right, who are we targeting and why? And if they're growing like crazy, it's like, cool. Well, let's just make sure we're capturing enough data as to why we're growing like crazy and where the growth is coming from. But where can we, where should we double down? Should we double down in particular markets? Should we double down in segmentation? Should we double down in, you know, uh, in SDRs or outbound? Like what should we double or triple down on? Right. And so, and then if you're on the flip side, if you're not growing as quickly, then it's like, okay, well, why? So a lot of it is, is, you know, when you've got a first time founder, the diagnosis, they don't know what they're looking for. Right. So where I get to help them is be like, oh, here are all the problems. It's kind of like a doctor, like, well, you know, you clearly have a disease. So take these pills and you'll be fine. 
right? <laughs> Whereas, you know, and on both sides. So if they're struggling or if they're scaling like crazy, there is, there's, a, there's an analysis or a diagnosis that, that happens. And that's, that's my job because I've, you know, I've seen it a million times. So it's, it's hard for me to sit here and say there is a, an absolute you know, playbook I'm going to recommend to every single founder and CEO because it, there's so much variability there. That makes a lot of sense. With that said, though, <laughs> I want to hear more about your playbook. So I'm not sure how much you've already answered this, but you talk about having, it sounds like a physical asset. Um, I imagine something you share with founders that they can read through on their own so that it can augment the work that you're doing one-on-one. -on -one. Yes. Tell me a little bit more about some of the things that are in there Correct. and why you felt like it was important to take the time to do that. Well, I, I mean, first and foremost, I had to do it because of leverage, because I get the same questions over and over and over again. Um, you know, how much should I expect to pay a VP of sales? What's, what's, how should I hire them? What's that process? What should my interview process look like? Um, how should I think about SDR comp? Comp is the, so it's funny. Beginning of the year, you know, it's all about hiring like crazy, building out comp plans, territories, kind of all the operational stuff, right? End of the year, it's like, okay, are we going to actually hit our numbers and are we planning appropriately for the upcoming year? Now, I would argue that's actually a mistake. You need to start your planning process in, in Q3 and not in Q4. Because if you got to go higher, it could take you three to six months to get the right butts and seats. But then there are other things that come into play, like all of a sudden we're going out and raising funding in January. And all of a sudden we can't go hire all these people because then our cost of sale looks way too high because we've got too many people in, you know, they're not really producing because they're all, you know, ramping, so to speak. So there, again, there's always a whole bunch of factors. Um, but the playbook itself is is kind of, I mean, I guess it kind of covers everything from like, first of all, what is the right go-to-market strategy? Are we going to go product-led growth? Or are we going to go sales and marketing-led growth? Are we going to do a combination of both? Are we going to do freemium? And if we do freemium, how are we going to convert those free users? What kind of what kind of guardrails do we want to put in place if we're doing freemium in order to ensure that we're getting business domains so that we're, we, if when we outbound to follow up, we actually have something to follow up to. If we're going product-led growth, helping our, our companies understand the challenges of product-led gro growth. At the end of the day, product-led growth is just another top of the funnel strategy to get people engaged. In this case, they're getting engaged in the product and they're starting to get value. And then you have to think about, well, how are you organizing your your sales and your whole go-to-market operation to support your go-to-market motion. So that's kind of where it starts. Like what's your go-to-market motion and then how are you going to organize your go-to-market teams to support that go-to-market motion? And, and then, then you start to break down like, okay, based on that motion, I'm assuming that you're targeting specific companies. Let's break down your ICP and to get really clear about where the revenue is coming from. So that we know where to double down. And also again, if we're going to go outbound where we need to go outbound and if we're getting inbound, how do we qualify out all of the noise, right? Using looking at the data and identifying we're going after. And then we talked about buyer personas. I've already mentioned that. Um, then underneath that, by the way, is messaging. Oh my gosh. Woo. Here's what typically happens. You build, you know, you're going out and you're, you're closing deals as founder CEO. You likely don't have a deck because you're just, you're the founder CEO. And so you're, leveraging your network and you're having conversations and then you go out to raise money. So you build a deck, right? To, to raise money, you use that deck and it works and you raise capital, whether it's a seed round or a series A, and then you take that same deck because it got investors convinced and you get rid of some slides and you give it to a salesperson. Like here, go use this to go sell. It's absolute dog yeah. shit. It's super self-serving. It doesn't work. 
um, it, there's no credibility being built because they're not the founder. They're a salesperson in some cases because you're early. They're a junior salesperson. And so you're not really setting them up for success. So the next thing that I really want to break down is how do we talk about who we are and the value that we deliver through the voice of what we learn from our customers and our experience and you as founder, your superpower or, you know, what, what, what got you, what led you to solving for this problem. So that right there on its own, that could take. Months. I'll interrupt you for a moment. And then you start to break down kind of the operational pieces. <laughs> I was going to interrupt you for a moment just because this yeah, is yeah, a please. pain that I feel intimately on a personal level. And I don't think I ever appreciated it until founding a company, but then you go and hire a salesperson and you just don't realize, wow, like I have spent 10, 15, 20 years building up certain levels of experience that led me to want to create this solution in the market that oftentimes, like for me personally, I'm selling to people that used to, that have the jobs that I used to have. And so it's just very natural to just communicate the pain that I felt personally in previous roles and the solutions that I've spent years thinking about. And to then hire a salesperson and have like yep. a one or two hour call with them to try to summarize that and say, okay, get after it. It's just not realistic in any way. Not to mention the fact that it's a lot easier nope. to get a meeting with nope. a founder CEO title than it is an account executive title. So then you're out like, I mean, it's just so easy for me to go out, go 100%. out and network with people like yourself that will take a meeting. And then all totally. of a sudden you got somebody with the account executive title trying to do the exact same thing. It just doesn't work the same. It's the worst. It's worse. That's why they have draft on behalf. You know, it's like send it as, as if I'm sending it from Eddie, not as if I'm sending it from Doug at sales rep, because the truth is, is Eddie will at least someone will pay attention to it because it says founder CEO. It's true. The reality is, is like, you know, we take, we take things like connection, credibility, and empathy for granted. I mean, you had, you have all of those because you've been in a space forever. You hire a salesperson that doesn't have that same level of, of experience and understanding and they, and, it, and everything about connection, credibility, and empathy feels forced. Yeah. Right. And the other thing is too, is from a, you know, from a messaging perspective, what, what invariably ends up happening is like, everyone just talks about themselves. Like the first slide is, hey, look at us, look at our, I mean, I do this with all of our companies right after they get funding. I'm like, cool, send me your first call deck. And then I just shred it. I absolutely just tear it apart. I'm like, this is poor shit. As a buyer, I would laugh you out of the room because it's so arrogant. And it's like, you know what? You haven't earned squat. And I don't really care if you've raised money from Emergence and Sequoia and, you know, A16, who the hell cares? If you don't demonstrate that you get me and you understand what I'm dealing with, then I don't have time for you. And so that's a big part of the messaging. What people, here's what, here's what founders struggle with, what they don't realize. There is, you know, there's what I call company messaging, which is like who you are and why you exist. What's your purpose in this world? Why did you start this company? And there's marketing messaging, which is to raise some level of awareness and interest, right? So you're going to send it out to the masses, things that you may do on, with billboards or in campaigns or, or, webinars, what have you. And then there's sales messaging, which is different. And, and, and most founders just try and squish it all into one deck. And I was like, here yep. you go. I think we could talk for a long time about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah we, to we totally can. The other thing that's in the playbook, by the way, are things like, you know, benchmarks for, for all of your metrics, um, process docs, right? How do you build out your sales process? You know, what does it mean if you want to institute medic or if you want to, you know, 
you know, I, largely I break down all of the sales process into like, forget about all these methodologies. I break down the difference between a methodology and, and, and um, a playbook, which often gets really confused um, by people. And it's like, all right, let's break down how your buyers buy from you and what that, what that looks like, how they bought from you in the past. Let's, let's spend more time on that versus our process so that we can manage our business. Because again, that's all about us. It's not taking into consideration what our buyers are going through and what we have to navigate on their end. Um, again, another one of those kind of aha moments, like, oh, I didn't realize, like, you know, who, like, who cares if you have three stages or 12? It doesn't matter. If your buyers buy, you know, with 12 stages or 12 different steps, then guess what? That's how you yep. sell. It, it's amazing around, to me how right? rarely people, because I know it's time consuming, but how rarely people take the time to just sit down and say, if I've never heard of this company before in my life, what is step one? What is step two? What does that feel like? I go and try to register for your webinar. What does that experience feel like? I get the email confirmation. I get yeah. this, I get that. Is this positive, negative? How does it make me feel? Does it make me want to continue to engage or not? And it's time consuming to go through that exercise. Um, but it's incredible for me to see how often that exercise is skipped over. Yeah, for sure. You know, I mean, look, secret shoppers have existed for hundreds of years for a reason, right? You want to, you want someone to walk into your store and, and give you feedback on what the experience is like. Well, guess what? You can take the exact same approach in a digital world, right? So, you know, respond to a campaign and see if you ever get a call back. Have somebody actually be a secret shopper for you, meaning for your own organization, not for your competitors. So they understand what the experience is like. We do this all the time with our companies. And we're like, oh, I see a webinar and I'm like, cool, I sign up for it. And then I wait and see how often I get, you know, pinged and what the message looks like. And I'm like, okay, just so you know, there's typos in your response back to me when I went to sign up for this webinar. That's a problem, right? You know, it's the, it's the little things that we neglect. And again, it's largely because there's so many things to do mm -hmm. when you're early stage. But I believe, I'm a huge believer in slow down to speed up. Measure twice, cut once. Like do the work so that you don't have to clean up all the mess afterward, afterward and later on, you know, kind of downstream, if you will, because it's so much worse. Downstream. Yeah, and I think like we see a lot of rework when people don't do that because inevitably you end up just investing this incredible yeah. amount of time and energy going down a path only to realize like that was the wrong path or that was an inefficient path. And so whatever you invested or your ROI on that is half of what it could be because you didn't take that time to measure twice, cut once and think like, okay, step by step, what does this journey look like for somebody? How do we optimize it? You just try to put more throughput in yep. and then you you have like more water pouring into a more uh, a leaky bucket, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny you say that because it's it's why I recommend when I talk to early founders and let's say they just raised a bunch of money and they're like, okay, cool. I literally just had this conversation with a company that it's, you know, they're like over a billion in, in, in valuation in like six months. And it's just, it's crazy. They're growing so fast. And they're like, well, what do we do? Because <laughs> we're trying to go from 10 to 100 million you know, in a year. I'm like, well, you know what you do? You go focus all your efforts on post sales right now. That has got to be nailed. How you think about customer success and taking care of your customers has got to be 
the most like the most important part outside of you know the product actually working that has to be the most important part of your business because you can't have a, you can't afford to have a leaky bucket nobody can right because at the end of the day all of that investment you make in your you know upfront in marketing and product and everything to get your customers on board to have them leave and have after having a terrible experience is just a massive waste so i always even early stage founders are like hey i need to go hire a sales leader i'm like no you don't Go hire customer success first. And like, huh? And then I'm like, oh, and by the way, and then go hire marketing. I'm like, huh, what? And then go it's hire so sales. In, it's so interesting that you said that. I never talk about this for this reason. I feel like by a wide margin, customer success is the most neglected area of RevOps and probably go to market in general. Yep. Yep. Um, it's less so... It's it's less so in terms of go to market in general because there there is a new metric that is actually equally as important right now as revenue, like across the board. As investors, there are two metrics that we care deeply about: revenue, net dollar mm -hmm. retention. Right now, if you're a seed stage company, you don't have enough customers who might churn unless they churn because you know the product just didn't quite work. You know, when you get to Series A, you may not even have a whole lot of a whole lot of customers that are up for renewal just yet. But I tell you what, we're watching. Oh, we're, show me a list of everybody that's coming up for renewal in the next six months. Show me who's at risk. Why? Let's dig into that because we got to solve for that right away. Because you can't fuel, you can't pour all this money we just gave you into marketing and into sales if we're going to have problems downstream. Um, I think what you just mentioned though is super valid in the fact that. Revenue operations in terms of customer su success and support is wildly neglected. It started with sales ops, right? So the world of RevOps all started with sales ops. And then guess what? Because of Marketo and Eloqua and responses and, you know, and, and, the, and all the other solutions that are out there on the marketing front, HubSpot, et cetera, we realized, oh, shit, those products are really complicated. And they're heavy and they require a lot of handholding. So then there's marketing operations to look after the tech stack, right? And so RevOps became looking after sales and marketing operations. And CS, which has never really gotten a whole lot of investment outside of Gainsight, it's been like, uh, you're fine. You're fine. You're good. And I'll tell you what, I think that's, that is a mistake. It's a massive mistake. I, I could not agree more. Um... Let's dive into metrics. So you talked about net dollar retention. Could you define that and then share some of the other metrics that you guys are looking at most commonly? Um, you know, yeah, totally. I mean, net dollar retention is how much, you know, your customers are renewing for plus expanding, right? So, you know, you look at, you, you look at, there's, you know, net logo retention, there's net dollar retention. Basically, if you've got a customer that's paying you a million dollars a year, when they come to when they go to renew, are they paying paying you a million plus? Or are they paying you less than a million? At the end of the day, that's what really it's in the simplest terms. I don't want to get it all into formulations and calculations and all that. It's just simple terms. If we've got an existing customer, are they renewing and are they expanding? If they're expanding, then that's driving our net dollar retention up, right? Because you're gonna always have customers who either churn, meaning leave after their contract is over, largely due to the fact that they go out of business, they get acquired, or they realize that the value of your solution isn't what you promised and they have to make some trade-offs right now because maybe the economy is shifting. So this is going to happen to a lot of us out there right now. Some of our customers are going to peel back because they're going to like, 
this is more of a nice to have versus a must have right now. And we've got to be more financially uh, 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 conscious of you know where we're spending. So you're going to have some contractions, people that you know signed up for a thousand users. Now they only need 700 or 800. And they, they're going to want some in terms of data and metrics. They want to know, like, what's the utilization of your solution? So if you are not really clear about how much people are using your product, you're doing yourself and your customers a massive disservice. Just note that. Because those things impact net dollar retention. So if I got a bunch of churn customers that leave or they downgrade or, you know, they, they reduce the, the size of their implementation, then that impacts net dollar retention, right? So I got a bunch of customers that are growing organically. Awesome. But then I got to take into consideration churn and, and the people that are downgrading and that impacts net dollar retention. Now, world-class net dollar retention is somewhere in the 105 to 110% range. Um, I'm, we're seeing companies that are 160, 170% net dollar retention. What that means is you don't have to focus as much on the direct business because you're getting so much in terms of expansion. It's really the, um, it's, you know, it means the land and expand is really, really working extremely yeah, well. I think that this is a really incredible thing that every company should be thinking about. And personally, my first tech sales job, I was sales guy number one at a very small uh, company that builds a solution on top of Salesforce. We didn't have any marketing. That was also me and the CEO working together with an ad agency. And then in terms of customer success, we had an implementations team and customer service team. But the first thing I said, I think in week one on the job was, hey, boss, like as, sale, as your only sales guy, do you want me to call our existing customers and see if we could grow them? And the reaction at the time, this was a long time ago, it's like 10, 11 years ago, was, oh, no, like, you know, our customer success team handles that. We're good. And it just wasn't a focus area. And then I joined Salesforce and, and we both saw this. I think their net dollar retention is something <laughs> like 200%. And I spent more of my time working with existing customers than new customers. And what I saw were two really important things. Yeah. Number one, you land that customer on that first product and then you grow license count or go into another department and you thread the needle across the organization. And it's just an incredibly powerful playbook. But in addition to that, even the new customers, yep. I can't tell you how often a new customer came because they got a new VP of sales. And that person had been at a previous company where this playbook was rolled out and went from sales to marketing, to service, yep. to accounting. And then they come into their new company and say, well, I had so much success with Salesforce in my last company. I'm not even going to consider taking this job unless I have Salesforce in this new company. So it's not even just a net dollar retention yeah. strategy. It's also a new logo strategy. Totally, totally. But the only thing is, so you have to be careful, though, because I feel like, you know, look, if net dollar retention is high, you have to be careful because there's always, so, so it goes back to like, well, then who owns expansion? Who owns renewal expansion, uh, you know, uh, um, upsell is, is the question. And, and, and I'm going to say it depends. And I hate that answer, but it does because it depends on the, you know, the, the, the price point of the product. If you're selling enterprise solution, guess what? The AE, the direct selling AE should own the account for the life of the account because they've put in all the heavy lifting and all the work to get to land that account. And they have the relationships and there's nothing worse as a buyer. All of a sudden, you, we just closed this. We've been working together for nine months on this deal. We closed it. And then you hand me off to someone else and you're like, see you later. I've got to go work on you know, other deals. When the reality is, to your point, if there are multiple products, if there are opportunities to sell our, this product 
to multiple organizations or parts of the organization. So there's 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 always expansion of upsell opportunities. You just have to be careful because as a sales leader, you always need to be mindful of how much in our pipeline is uh, you know upsell expansion potential revenue versus net new logo potential revenue. Because as in, as investors, we're looking at that. You know, is there a slowdown in new logo growth? Is all of your growth coming from just pure expansion, which is fine, but it begs the question, well, like, why is the new logo slowing down uh, in terms of in terms of your growth? Because we need the new logo so that they can continue expanding. Right. And then it's it's gravy for everyone. So you always it's always something you have to be really, really careful about. Also, the other thing is customer success managers likely chose that path because they didn't want the commercial responsibility. Right. It's funny how many times I talk to CSMs, they're like, well, I don't really, I'm not a salesperson. I'm like, yes, you are. Absolutely you are. Even if you don't carry the commercial responsibility, you still have a responsibility of of helping our customers understand the value of us as a partner and where we could potentially for help them even more across their organization. Yeah, I, that really resonates with me and something I again I saw at Salesforce. I think I got a couple of things happened there. One when I was there, we definitely ran into this problem you talk about where ex executive management came and said, look, it's great that you guys are selling existing customers and growing them, but like we're low on new logos and we really need to focus on that. And they were putting in spiffs and bonuses and all of these things because their point, which is very valid, which is <laughs> yeah. we just only focus on growing existing customers. We're going to run out of stuff to like sell people, right? Um, equally, yep. it is always easier to sell into an existing customer than a new customer. That being said, you have to have something to do. So I've made the mistake of working with other, other SaaS companies and recommending this approach only to realize that they have a point solution. They just landed pretty much everything that they can possibly land in that account. And now their best hope is that maybe they hire a couple more employees in the same job. So they add some license count. Um, and they retain that customer, but unlike Salesforce, they don't have the ability to go into new departments and to upsell on add-ons. They just have the one product yeah. for one group of people. What do you do with that? Unless you build a new product. Right, 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 right. Or unless, um, unless you can sell them a new addition, right? So unless there's new capabilities in the product that you release that arguably exist in, you know, we'll call it, you know, the, whatever the, the enterprise, the unlimited edition. So there's the opportunity to potentially upsell them to a new edition, but that is easy enough that you can let your CSMs handle that. AEs, you need to go back to focus on, on the new logo, landing those new logos. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's pivot here in the last few minutes of, uh, of the interview and let's talk about um, operationalizing this. You touched on this earlier. When you're working with companies and specifically their RevOps teams, um, what are your expectations of and what are you seeing most commonly working in terms of operationalizing the go-to-market model? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, operationally, uh, operationalizing first and foremost starts with buying the right CRM. Um, I love all you folks at HubSpot. It's a great solution to start off with, but eventually you got to scale up to to something. If you if if we believe if you believe and we believe you're going to be a large standalone iconic software company, then just bite the bullet early on so that you can actually because converting from HubSpot when you're a Series C over to Salesforce because you need the scale and growth is a pain in the butt. I'm sure you know that and understand yep. that quite well. So um, 
you know, look, it starts with let's make sure we've got the right CRM. Let's make sure we set it set it up properly. Let's make sure that we set up profiles properly. Let's make sure that we are already we're already thinking about territories. Like to be honest, as soon as you hire a salesperson, you've got one territory. Yeah, it's the world. And the moment, and guess what? And then you need to start thinking about the second salesperson, which then becomes we're going to split the United States into half. Now we have two territories. Awesome. You got to start thinking about that right out of the gate. I hate the fact when you get like all of a sudden you got 10, 12 people in your sales organization like, oh, we need to institute territories. And everyone's like, what? No way. Huh? And then once it just becomes a bitch fest because everyone wants the best territory. I want the Bay Area. I know it best. And it's like, well, if you had territories from the very beginning, get a much better place. But if you don't have RevOps as a sales leader, maybe that's the last thing you're thinking about because you're like, I just need some people to sell because I've got this quota that I've got to hit. It's called four million, and um, you know I'm not getting any leads for marketing because we didn't hire a marketing leader yet. We just have all this inbound stuff that we're likely going to plow through. And oh, by the way, I need SDRs to help me get through that instead of full stack AEs. Like the list, you know, the list of problems goes on and on. So in terms of operationalizing, then the next thing is okay, okay, do we have our CRM set up so that we're capturing the right data, and do we have our, our the the security set up properly so that we can we can allocate information to the right people. Um, do we have the right tools in place that are that it's going to help us with workflow in terms of customers coming in and data passing along so that we can actually truly see what's happening? And then the third piece of what I call kind of operationalizing your go-to-market is like is really thinking through what is our sales process because at the end of the day you got to forecast and you got to figure out how to get your forecast nailed down. You got to do that quickly and you can only really do that if you're institutionalizing the right process that is buyer-driven. I'd argue medic does some of the is is probably more appropriate for more companies than they actually even think about, um, whether that's medic or med pick. One little caveat to that, by the way, if you're going to introduce any sort of sales process, make sure that it covers the entire go to market team, medic, med pick, whatever you want to choose, force management. I don't care. Usually that's just focused on the sales organization and that's you're doing your company a disservice. Your process needs to go from marketing to sales and through customer success. You got to think about what that looks like. like. And look, by the way, a process is not just not they're not just steps or percentages of of you know uh, or or you know kind of closed probability. It's also language. We want to create consistency of language so that when marketing says, "Hey, this person's a great fit for us," and oh by the way, here's who they are in your buyer map or whatever you're thinking about your you know the 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 group that is making the buying decision whatever languages you're using like for example i'm a fundamental believer in the world and the world of a mobilizer i don't believe in champions champions don't really have the right a level clout to get a, a decision done a mobilizer can actually pull people together has the right level of clout and they have a willingness to actually go out and help i recommend all of our companies identify the mobilizer if somebody does not have that person identified and it's very clear as to why they are the mobilizer, then you don't have a deal and it's not going to get closed. I love that. And right? I think one of the biggest problems that we see in go-to-market is this classic problem where marketing is responsible for generating leads, sales is responsible for closing deals, whether or not they become good customers, and then customer success is trying to retain and grow those customers. Each team has different incentives. Each team has different tools. Yep. They have different definitions of things and they have different operating models. And then yep. leadership doesn't understand why people are rowing in different directions and why there's infighting. 
True. I was just talking this morning with uh, Mike Hook uh, about this notion because this has been a, this has been like a pedestal I've been standing up for a long time. But I don't believe in sales and marketing alignment. Interesting. I wish we had more than five minutes to cover I believe, this. And I believe in sales, marketing, and customer success integration. There's a difference. Alignment means I know what you're doing and what you're up to. Integration means you and I are responsible for the same thing. Yep. It's the customer. It's revenue, right? It's net dollar retention. We're all incentivized, compensated, and focused on the same thing. Our customer. Imagine this. Imagine if marketing was responsible for and incentivized based on closed revenue. Do you think they would care a hell of a lot more about the leads, what they're defining a lead is? And do you think they would care a lot more about the conversion rates from somebody who's identified as a contact to a lead, from a lead to an opportunity? Do you think they would get more involved in understanding why we're closed lossing opportunities? Do you think they would understand why, would want to understand why we're losing to some other competitors? Do you think they would spend more time focused on internally understanding our customers and why we win and why we lose? Absolutely. Instead of, I got 10,000 leads at this conference, sales, why aren't you closing? Well, and if you go to marketing and you say, you're going to be measured on lead generation, you're going to be rewarded, compensated on lead generation. If you don't generate enough leads, you're going to lose your job. Then you're going to be focused on lead generation. Totally. 100%. I would be. We all have Crazy. to look out for our own best interests. We all need, especially if your job is on the line, right? <laughs> totally, totally. One of the things I tell founders early on, and, and it's in my handbook, is like, just know this. Like, there's some golden rules in building a company. One of the golden rules, incentives drive behavior. Full stop. It's a golden rule. So if something's going awry, if something's not working in the organization, look at the incentive structure. Look at the incentive or the way your incentives are organized right now, because that right there will likely be the root cause of why the behaviors are not what you expected or need from, from yeah, the business. I couldn't agree with that more. Um, and it's my one biggest takeaway from Charlie Munger, who knows a few things about building and investing in companies. Um, I want to be cognizant of... It's been yeah, around the block. I've been, I want to be cognizant of time here, Doug. This has been great. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed this. Of course. This has been great. 